Welcome, everyone, to episode 48 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and with me, as always, I have my partner, Scott Harvey. Scott, in just a little bit, we're going to be reviewing our first summer blockbuster, which I don't think has been considered a flop in Pixar's Toy Story 4. But before we get to that, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Scott. You know, uh, it's been a big weekend, and it's not something that I've really mentioned that much on here, but... Recently have been getting involved with the movie trivia face-off, which is a uh, brand new trivia league for uh, patrons of the Schmodown. And uh, had my first match a few months ago, um, actually the first match of the league. And today I actually recorded my second match, which was in the uh, singles tournament that I was able to qualify for um, based on my first match. And uh, it's been a lot of fun and the league is really growing. People uh, are starting to recognize it, people within the Schmodown circle. So uh, really exciting and definitely want to take the chance to plug it here. Um, you know, look it up on uh, YouTube and on all social media sites, Movie Trivia Face Off. You'll, you'll be hearing that name a lot soon, I, I predict. Yeah, no, it definitely seems like it's growing. You mentioned that Christian Harloff is starting to watch some of the matches, clearly getting the attention of the highest ups in the Schmodown. And with that comes, I think, even more viewership as someone like Christian starts talking about it. People start watching it a little bit more, start trying to work their way into it. And if for no other reason, uh, another good reason to become a patron. Taking it out of that context, I mean, we've just seen two people come from the fan leagues into the Schmodown uh, and be successful. Of course, you know, Paul has a great start to the, to his time in the league this year, but then Chance, maybe you could say his record's a little bit up and down, but, you know, he's been in some ways a, a figurehead of the, of the young players in the league. So yeah. definitely making waves. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm moving to Los Angeles. So thanks, Scott. Uh, I mean, you can still podcast from Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, That's absolutely. Zencaster travels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, Scott, as already alluded to today, we're rolling up our sleeves on the podcast and taking a deep dive with Toy Story 4. Set primarily two years after the end of Toy Story 3, when Andy donates his toys to Bonnie before he heads off to college, Toy Story 4 finds our gang of toys living contently in Bonnie's domain. With her first day of kindergarten fast approaching, Woody, who often seems to be cast aside by Bonnie in favor of many of her other toys, is worried that Bonnie will find it hard adjusting to kindergarten life. After sneaking into her bag for her orientation day and contributing to the creation of a spork-turned toy, Forky, Woody does everything in his power to prevent Forky from trashing himself as Bonnie and her family go on a quick family vacation road trip before the true start of kindergarten the following week. Try as he might, Woody finds it quite difficult, uh, and with Forky jumping ship or RV midway through the trip, Woody feels obligated to go after him, creating an all-new adventure for the old cowboy, which the rest of the movie explores in depth. With many skeptical of the necessity of this fourth entry in the franchise, especially given the emotional ending of its predecessor, it's fair to say that this movie has had a quite high bar to pass. For you, did this movie prove its worth Or do you view this solely as a Disney cash grab? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's really the question. Like, we've talked a lot with these Disney movies about, are they really necessary? You know, we talked about it with Aladdin. We talked about it with Dumbo. We're going to have the same conversation here with uh, The Lion King here in a couple weeks. And I think that 
you know, Toy Story 4 is another example. You, you have in Toy, in the Toy Story franchise, one of the best trilogies of all time, if not the best trilogy of all time, um, in terms of consistency and how, you know, excellent all three movies in that series are. You know, I, I mean, I think there's definitely the feeling of why do we get a fourth one, especially because the third one ended with such a nice cherry on top of that wonderful um, emotional scene of, of Andy handing off the toys to Bonnie. But, you know, I think this is a franchise where we just need to stop um, asking questions uh, about the quality and, and just accept that uh, more Toy Story is going to be good Toy Story because this is yet another outstanding entry in the series and on the level easily of the other three movies. Um, it's it's a close debate in terms of, you know, what's the best of the series. I think this one is a, a little bit better than the third one, if we're being honest. I think the third one sort of rehashed a lot uh, from Toy Story 2, although obviously it has a lot of merits. But, you know, this movie, like I said, belongs right in the franchise. Um, it's, I think, a necessary expansion. Um, I think that, like I said, so the third one, you know, really did, I think, rehash some parts of the second movie. So I think we needed a more cohesive conclusion story. And I think we get that here. Now, of course, it always remains to be seen whether we'll get another uh, Toy Story in another you know, seven or eight years. But once again, as with number three, I think that uh, they've done a brilliant job here uh, in the climax of this film of really putting a bow on top and satisfying fans You know, it to the point where if they don't make another one, I won't mind so much because they really did do a perfect job wrapping things up with in, in, in terms of the storyline uh, in this particular movie. Um, I think, you know, again, it has all of the hallmarks that we've come to love from this franchise. It is funny. Uh, it has plenty of emotional moments. Um, it ha- introduces to introduces us to some great new characters. You know, of course, Forky being the main one, which we'll talk about uh, the the Forky fever has been all over Twitter. It's it's really been quite something to behold, uh, considering he's just a uh, plastic spork. I, I don't know if uh, Josh Cooley and the the people uh, behind Toy Story Four really could have predicted that Forky would become practically a religion at this point, but he has. And you know, it's easy to see why after you see the movie. He's a lovable character, and more than that, sort of the idea that he stands for is something that a lot of people can relate to. And we'll, you know, we'll talk again about the messages uh, that this movie, you know, has for audiences, uh, because I think that is again one of the hallmarks of the Toy Story franchise is the reason it appeals to people of all generations is because of the relatable messages at their heart. Most recently, in Toy Story Three, this idea of like the cycle of life and Andy going off to college and you know, the impact that it has on his family and, you know, his family of toys, um, definitely a rel- relatable feeling. And I think this movie looks at sort sort of the, the perks of being a wallflower idea of like, we accept the love that we think we deserve, uh, which I think is an interesting thing for a movie about children's toys to, to explore. Not, you know, not to mention the fact that we're getting into some really existential stuff about consciousness and uh, so, you know, some really philosophical high-minded stuff, but no, that's awesome. It's it's great to see a Disney Pixar animated franchise, you know, largely directed at kids that isn't afraid to explore topics like these um, and really, you know, get in on the ground floor with some of the kids who will be seeing this movie and uh, convey some very valuable messages to them. So, you know, this could have been a cash grab. Like we said with Aladdin, this could have been a cash grab because, you know, it's Toy Story, right? Everyone loves the, the trilogy. 
everyone was going to go see this movie no matter what. Um, but as seems to be a theme here recently, um, you know, Disney and Pixar, they're not content with they're not content with just making money. They want to put out a quality product. And they have certainly done that with this movie, which is one of my favorites this year. I mean, it must be said. Yeah, I think that this I mean, for me, just to be completely transparent, this is my second second favorite movie of the year so far behind only another uh, Disney product, Avengers Endgame. But for me, you talk about this being a necessary sequel. And that was like the biggest question everyone was asking. The promotional trailers really didn't do, I think, that great of a job, except for maybe the last one of really selling this movie to people who are skeptical about whether or not we really needed this. People were rightfully skeptical. And for me, I'm totally agreed and on board with you about saying it's a necessary sequel. You know, I will say that the third Toy Story movie is my favorite of the, of the four. Mm-hmm. This one didn't surpass it from, from my strict in terms of my enjoyment and which one I like the most. But when you talk about a, a kind of a holistically original piece of, of, of work in this franchise, you know, ex- rehashing a completely new story, exploring pretty much almost entirely new themes. And then the ending you got, as much as maybe you got closure on Andy's ending and you get that, you know, the, the story or the theme of the life cycle of a toy, right? From the third movie. This one, it's purely character driven focus from the toy's perspective. Yes, Bonnie is in the background, her family is in the background, she's a part of the story, an important part of the story, right? But this this is a, you know, a farewell to all these toys, right? And, you know, you talk about who knows, maybe seven or eight years down the road, they'll make another one. And I wasn't old enough and plugged in enough to know whether or not they were saying the same things they're saying now after the third movie. But this felt like a really finite ending. It feels like the people over at Pixar feel like it's a finite ending and that this is the end of that of that story. Who knows? Again, maybe, you know, episode 400 of the podcast, we'll talk about Toy Story. Who knows? But uh, I think that it was such a fitting ending. I think that just from a high level, I thought one of the things that was tough for this movie is that I thought it started slow. You had a lot to be introduced to in terms of the new dynamics in Bonnie's household and how Woody is in some ways kind of on the fringe of that. I think that's really important. You get the creation of, of, you know, Forky on, on Bonnie's orientation day. That being said, as slow as I thought, relatively speaking, the first 20 to 30 minutes were of the movie, the last 20 to 30 minutes are maybe some of the best in the franchise. You know, the last full act of this movie is so good. Some of the characters that were introduced to or reintroduced to in this movie, particularly Bo Peep, uh, Duke Kaboom, all these all these characters who we'll maybe talk about a little bit later, even Key and Peele's characters, Bunny and Ducky. I think that they are awesome contributions to this. And then the finale, which we'll talk about in detail when we get to the plot, I think was perfect. As, as, as emotional and powerful as the end of Toy Story 3 was, I actually found this one, Toy Story, Toy Story 4's ending, to be more powerful and more affecting. So, I mean, for me, I think I'm ready to, to dive in a little bit deeper. I don't know if you want to add anything else. No, let's just get into it. Yeah, why not? Because I think we have a lot to cover here. There's so many characters. I think probably quicker than than the new toys will be. We'll start with the returning cast. Woody, Buzz, you have the whole gang. Jesse, Ham, Rex, Slink. I'm sure I'm forgetting people as well. I think every character gets a little bit of a moment. But these returning toys, for the most part, are, are a little bit on the back burner. We see a little bit less of them. Obviously, with Woody being the primary exception and Buzz kind of a secondary exception. Although, even with Buzz, I think we see him a little bit less in this one. Let's start with Woody, though. Tom Hanks's voice role. Woody as a character. What do you want to say about that? I think that, that Woody goes through so much in this movie and is such a different character in some ways, or at least the place that he's in when we start is so different than the place that he was ever with Andy. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, as sort of a macro level comment, you know, I think that this voice cast over the course of this franchise is just so incredible. And, you know, I said, I said this in, on Letterboxd recently, but I think that this is one, like one of the rare animated like franchises where you can, you think of any character in this movie and you instantly can hear the voice of the person playing it in their head, whether it's Wallace Shawn as Rex, whether it's Don Rickles as Mr. Potato Head, or well, you know, whether it's Tom Hanks as Woody. And I think, you know, Tom Hanks, one of the most recognizable, well-loved actors out there, you know, when I watch this movie, I don't hear Tom Hanks, right? I hear Woody. Um, and I think that really speaks to what he's been able to do with this character and, and Tim Allen likewise as Buzz Lightyear. But, you know, as for Woody in this movie, I think Tom Hanks is is a perfect person to play this role all along because, you know, Woody is sort of the dad of the toys, right? He's the, he's their leader uh, in the first three movies. And who better to play that role than, you know, the well-known, lovable actor who everyone in America, you know, lo- knows and loves, Tom Hanks, right? He's America's dad. Um, so it makes sense that he would play this role here. Um, but I think, you know, to your point, what we see is sort of he's becoming uh, – America's granddad a little bit in this movie. Um, and perhaps he's not ready to accept that at the start of the movie, but I think uh, he has to undergo a lot during the course of the movie and, you know, learn the lesson that maybe, maybe you don't, first of all, maybe you can uh, be loved by more than one child. Maybe you you don't have to belong to just one child. And, but, but then second of all, maybe you don't need a child at all. Right. Um, that the thing that, uh, gives you life as a toy and, you know, on a, on a greater level as a, as a human being is being loved by someone else. And, you know, maybe that's a child and, you know, like it was for Woody with Andy, but maybe it's a new group of friends. Like it is like Woody has to discover over the course of this movie, because like you said, uh, he's been pushed to the side a little bit by Bonnie, but yeah. So I think his, his, his character arc is, you know, probably the most satisfying thing in this movie. And uh, Tom Hanks does an excellent job. You know, you probably you probably knew Woody's voice before you even knew Tom Hanks' voice. If you're someone of our age, right? Yeah. You know, grow- growing up, probably seeing Toy Story movies before you saw any other Tom Hanks movie. And I absolutely agree. I think that he's perfectly cast for the role. There's no one else who I could ever imagine voicing Woody. You know, I haven't played any of the Kingdom Hearts games that have you know Toy Story characters in them, but I can't imagine that it will feel satisfying to know that I don't think it's Tom Hanks who's voicing Woody in in those games. I think that's a perfect example of it because you have such a perfect voice cast overall, particularly with this character, Woody, it's it's hard not to always associate that voice with that character. And as for the character arc over the course of this film, I totally agree. You know, there are moments where we've seen this kind of character, this very, you know, high and mighty, I, you know, I'm loyal to my child and my child is the be all and the end all with Woody. And this movie is all about challenging that, not only from a, you know, you're with Bonnie now and Bonnie doesn't love you as much as Andy did probably, to all the way to when he, you know, he goes on his adventure trying to, you know, bring Forky back for Bonnie that he discovers, you know, lost toys are, you know, is not the worst thing. You know, these toys can also have a life with a different meaning, but equally important and equally powerful than other toys. And, you know, you talk about how his arc and his discovery of that is one of the best parts of this movie. And I absolutely agree. I think that having someone a character like Woody who we know so well that we've gotten to know so well over the course of three films and have this fourth one have his worldview I mean his core his core worldview challenged so dramatically and how much he has to go through to come to terms with that I thought it was an it was an amazing job yeah absolutely 
All right. The other kind of returning main returning character that we get any significant time with is Buzz voiced by Tim Allen. You know, it's hard to say that he's a main character in this film because he is a little bit relegated to trying to track down Woody after he doesn't come back very quickly. But you do get a couple nice moments. I don't know if it's fair to say he has a full character arc. But what you get from Buzz is that, you know, he has adapted much more quickly than Woody has. Yes, you could argue that, you know, Buzz is still getting played with by Bonnie. And so, you know, he hasn't had to face as harsh realities maybe as Woody has with Bonnie. But when you do get them in the RV and you get these conversations and how kind of in touch he is with everyone else in the crew, whether it's Jesse, whether it's Han, whether it's Rex, whether it's Slink, Buzz always felt more in touch with them. And I think he's a a very and always has been a very interesting foil for Woody. Do you think he proves that role well again or or do you have any other thoughts about him? Yeah, well, you know, like you said up top, I think he, he doesn't get as much screen time as probably in the other movies, but I think that that's necessary right like it it sort of justifies the decision a little bit that woody makes in the end and and with that being said you know tim allen has so established this role by now that you know there's not much more he needs to do in this movie uh it's such an iconic character you know everyone knows those iconic lines whether it's you know to infinity and beyond or you know buzz Lightyear to star command like the the way that the, the tone of his voice the the way that he says the lines is so unique to this character uh, and so unique to his performance. And it's really great. But yeah, I think, you know, he, he does enough here to make us feel in the end that he's, he's, he can be the new Woody, right? That, and I think that's really the role that he's asked to play sort of at the end of this movie is that he's going to be the person who leads the toys perhaps in the way that Woody did, or, you know, maybe in tandem with Jesse, but uh, I think, yeah, because, because, you know, in the old movies, like, yeah, he, it was always Buzz and Woody, right? But Woody was still the guy in charge. Um, and so I think Buzz has to take on a bigger role here, you know, going forward with the toys. And uh, so while he doesn't have much of an arc, you know, I think that that last scene between the two of them, right, that is, you know, the, the most emotional scene, right? That, that's what hits you in the feels because of how far you've come with this character. So. I think they uh, do a good job with uh, what needs to be done with Buzz in this movie. Yeah, they, they play him for the emotional moments. And that's right. They deserve that. They've earned it over the course of this franchise. And, you know, you talk about how it's always kind of been Buzz and Woody in previous movies. And, he, and it's necessary that Buzz takes a step back for this new story to be told in Andy's new uh, and, and sorry, not Andy, Woody's worldview to be challenged in the way that it is. And that's what happens. And, and so it, if you told me coming into the movie that, Buzz would play only a minor role, I'd be like, oh, I don't know if that's a good idea or not, right? Because he's such an important part. But again, they did it for the, for the sake of the story that they were telling. And I think it works out perfectly well. It, so many of the previous movies, you know, in the first one, it's directly, right? Woody versus Buzz. But even in the ongoing movies, not that it's a power struggle between the two of them, but there's always this dynamic of like, all right, like there's always some sort of like challenge going on, even if it's super... um you know, sub subtext. But the point is, I think that, that this is a part of the fact that we're telling a completely new story and Tim Allen gracefully steps into that new role. Buzz gracefully steps into that new role. And I don't really have much else to say beyond what, what you did there to say that he played it well. Yeah. And I think that it's fitting, right. That in the end, after, as far as these characters have come, you know, like you said, the sort of uh, friendly rivalry between the two of them in the past movies, that, you know, for Woody to make the ultimate decision that he makes, 
the last straw that breaks the camel's back, right, is something that Buzz tells him, which, you know, we won't say yet because of spoilers, I guess. But, um, you know, for it, the, the last thing Woody needs, um, you know, in order to make the decision that he makes in the end is Buzz's blessing and Buzz gives it to him. Yeah, well, casting the original movie to casting this new one, we're going to turn our turn our attention to some of the newer characters. Granted, this first person we're going to talk about who is such an integral part of the plot is not a quote-unquote new character to the franchise, but we didn't see her in the third movie, and that's Bo Peep, voiced by Annie Potts. Of course, she doesn't really pop on the screen until, you know, a third or even halfway through the movie, but she is the, you know, we talk about Woody's worldview being challenged a little bit ago. And she is that person who does that, right? We get that flashback scene at the beginning of the movie that shows her being sold and taken away and Woody, you know, offering to essentially kind of steal them back and and bring them back into the fold at Andy's house. But her saying, you know, we don't need that. It's part of the, it's part of the toy's life to be, you know, to be passed on to the next owner to be, or to move on. And so you get that flashback scene and then fast forward nine years or, or whatever it was. And you get this scene where uh, he comes across Bo Peep in this antique shop, that being Woody, of course, or, or at least comes across what he knows will be Bo Peep when she see when he sees her lamp. Uh, and then, you know, lo and behold, they do meet uh, in the playground yard. And, and that is kind of where the worldview really, really, really hits home, starts to be challenged as he sees that Bo Peep's life has not been what he assumes the life of a lost toy to be. In fact, it's been liberating. It's been freeing. It's been empowering in so many ways. And I think that what Pixar is able to do with this character's arc and what Annie Potts is able to do with the evolution of the way she voices this character, I think it it maybe is the best part of the movie for me. Yeah, no, I, I do really like the way that they uh, gave this character a fresh spin because I think that she's not one of the more memorable characters from the first two movies. And maybe that's why she they made the decision to not even have her in the third film. But they totally like, you know, revolutionize what they do with the character here because, you know, in the past, she's kind of been the she, she was just kind of the person who stood by and comforted and consoled Woody and stuff. She was just kind of a sidekick and not much more than that. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit of what they did with Jasmine in the Aladdin remake. But because here, you know, like you said, she's the person who, you know, challenges Woody's worldview. She's a much more empowered character. She's, you know, driving around in her skunk car. She has battle wounds, right? She's, she's lost her arm and she's uh, walking around with it taped up. Um, and, you know, make is just much more of a presence on screen uh, in general than she ever was in those first two movies. And, you know, again, looking at that climax, I totally get Woody's decision. I totally, you know, it, it totally makes sense and it, it totally works. And our big reason be, that it does is because of how far Bo Peep's character comes in this movie. Yeah. I mean, you talk about being empowering it. Being a sidekick in the pre in you know Toy Story one and Toy Story two to this point now where she's very much telling Woody what to do she's in charge in so many ways on this adventure sure maybe Woody is is doing certain actions and is and has to do certain things and it's his goal that they're ultimately trying to accomplish but Bo Peep is is constantly shown as the capable one uh, between the if, if you're comparing the two yes they diverge in opinion sometimes and you see that divergence and it starts to create that part of that arc that we see ultimately culminate at the end of the movie when Woody has to make a big decision. But to me, this character is perfect. Honestly, I think that it's hard. We, I can't find a flaw with this character with Bo Peep's arc in this particular movie. I mean, you've got a little bit of comedy and a little bit of foil with 
uh, her sheep whose names I always forget. Um, Billy, Gr- Billy Goat and Gruff. Yes, Billy Goat and Gruff. But then you also have, is it Mrs. Dimpleface or? Like uh, Giggle McDimples. Yes, that's what it is. Um, so you get a little bit of comedy in it with this character as well. And then you get the seriousness and the emotional maturity that you would expect from someone like Woody after all these years. But it has come in the form of Bo Peep, who, like you mentioned, and I was only a sidekick and not to question the maturity of her in previous movies, but is never given a chance to display that maturity. And the fact that Woody's example, you know, this exemplar that he has for being a quote unquote lost toy is Bo Peep is, is just done so well that you can see this evolution of this character that's happened over the nine years they've been separated and that character and the way that she carries himself and what Pixar did with it is what sells us on that final decision being made. Yeah. Awesome. So moving on to what are who are actually new characters now. We have, I'd say, three that are worth mentioning, and we can jump around to others, Scott, if you see fit, but wanted to kind of bring the spotlight on those. The first being Forky, voiced by Tony Hale, or who I just prefer to call Buster, uh, for, to be honest. Duke Kaboom, who's vo- voiced by probably the hottest commodity in Hollywood right now. I'm not going to lie, Scott. It's got to be Keanu Reeves. I mean, John Wick 3... He has Toy Story 4 under his belt now this year. And, Scott, I don't know if you're following this, but at E3, he was revealed to be one of the main characters in CD Projekt Red's Cyberpunk 2077, which got people going crazy when he was revealed at the Microsoft conference at E3 last week. And so Keanu Reeves being Duke Kaboom, I thought Duke Kaboom was hilarious, great character in this movie. We'll get to him in a second. But then the quote-unquote villain, Gabby Gabby, voiced by Christina Hendricks, Scott. Which three? Uh, which one of these three characters stuck out the most to you? And why don't we just start there? Yeah, uh, I mean, they all stick out. I think in, in their own ways. I think that I, I can't imagine how um, excited the Toy Story, the people behind this movie, must have been in in recent months and seeing how much uh, people have gotten on the Keanu hype train all of a sudden. I mean. They, they must have really been patting themselves on the back for their decision to, you know, put him in this role um, as the Canadian stuntman, Duke Kaboom. And he knocks it out of the park. Uh, he really commits to his role as this character. And, I mean, many of the biggest laughs for me, uh, without a doubt, came from this character and his different poses. And, uh, you know, <laughs> the fact that he's not a great stuntman, right? But he's able to, his ineptitude uh, is able to actually help the team out uh, in their adventures, which I enjoyed. Uh, I think you're right to say that, uh, you know, we could call him Tony Hale or we could call him Buster because I think he basically is doing Buster Bluth here, right, as Forky. Uh, But that's exactly what the character calls for. I don't have a problem with it at all. And I think he's really well cast uh, and also, you know, has a very satisfying arc going from, uh, you know, believing that he is trash. He is you know, not worth anything to anyone except, uh, you know, to be something that something to be discarded. Um, and with the help of Woody and the other toys and Bonnie um, discovers that uh, he can be something just as special as the other toys, even if uh, he doesn't look like them. Uh, and I think that, uh, yeah, Tony Hale is great. Um, and then, yeah, I think Christina Hendricks is very good, too, as this character who I think she does a nice job of, you know, walking the line between like the cre- sort of creepy doll, like villain, like you said, but also there's an emotional heart to her character. And, and you know, one of the more emotional scenes in the movie is when, uh, you know, we think that uh, Harmony, the girl who, you know, she wants to be taken in by is about to finally take her in. And, um, you know, it goes 
uh, sour very quickly when Harmony's like, nah, never mind. I don't really want her. And uh, even though, you know, this character is set up as a villain, you know, you really feel for her in that scene. And so I think they did a lot better job with the villain in this movie, the, the quote unquote villain in this movie than they did in Toy Story 3 with Lotso. And even in Toy Story 2 with uh, The Prospector, because even even though Toy Story 2 is my favorite of the, the series, I think that here they really bring out a softer, uh, more heartfelt side to the quote-unquote villain that feels right for the movie, feels right for this franchise. And, you know, the, the character is really redeemed in the end in a very satisfying way when she's able to be taken in by this lost child. It's, it's a great moment, and it's a very well-drawn character. When we talk about, just to quickly start with what you were talking about last, Gabby Gabby, I think that, of course, you think it's going to be your typical Toy Story villain, right? I mean, yeah, you have Sid in the first one who's a human who's a villain, right? But then, you know, the prospector in Toy Story 2, Lotso in Toy Story 3, and then you see Gabby Gabby and you're like, okay, we've probably seen a villain like this before, right? But instead, Toy Story, Pixar realized that something that they didn't really have in either of the previous three movies is a three-dimensional quote-unquote villain, and you get that in spades here. Right. As I think maybe Gabby Gabby won't be a quote, unquote, you know, a, a memorable villain. Right. Because, you know, maybe not have memorable lines or memorable scenes. But, you know, you're hard pressed to find a more emotionally satisfying conclusion to a quote unquote villain's arc than that scene that you're talking about at the end when she's taken in by a lost child. And I think that there's two parts to that one. It's a really nuanced kind of development of that villain, something that you don't really get that much with Lotso or with the prospector. And then for me, the second part is it, it also contributes to the emotional evolution and growth that you see in Woody and in yeah. someone like Bo Peep, right? I think that them helping her at the end, you know, well, first off, Woody sacrificing his voice box for her and then still helping her at the end of the movie. I think that, that is, it's just perfect. It fits perfectly with the story they're telling and the story they're telling is great. His nuanced is really effective. As for the other two characters, I guess to go first to Duke, I'm going to go first to Duke Kaboom and then I'll wrap up with Forky. I think Duke Kaboom is great. I mean, Keanu is Keanu. I mean, he's just having the, he might be having the best year of his life, honestly. It's just absolutely, <laughs> absolutely amazing. I don't know if you saw the videos. I think Fandango was circulating of him doing some of his voice acting for this, where they like video recorded him doing it. And he's like so into it. And it's amazing. <laughs> it's it. so cool. You got to look it up if you haven't seen it. Um, it. He's just so into it and awesome. And then, yeah, the character itself is hilarious you find again i feel like i'm just harping on this point but it just so it ties in so well to the to the narrative arc of woody and the dog you see this toy who yeah he's a lost toy and yeah you know he's in some way a a bad toy a malfunctioning toy a a suboptimal toy but the but he his value comes in the love that other people have for him and his and his and who he is himself regardless of whether or not he's successful at what he was built to do right and i think that Woody seeing that it's just another example of it's okay to be a lost toy. It's okay to not have an owner because that's not the be all and the end all. And when you add that to the comic relief that you get from him, again, another amazing character that I just can't praise enough. And then finally, as for, as for Forky, Tony Hale, I think, you know, if I had to point to the weakest point of the movie for me, and it's such a high bar, right? But I think this character might be it. I, I really do like what they're trying to do with this character. There are just moments with this arc and Tony Hale's great, by the way, I think he's awesome, but I think there are just moments with the arc where maybe the scenes about him trying to trash himself drag on a little bit too long, or he just seems really kind of just along for the ride in parts of this movie where yes, he kind of has to see everything unfolding for him, for his development to happen. But 
some of the development feels just a little bit forced, a little bit contrived, a little bit not quite all tied together for me. There just seems to be some point in the movie where a switch flips and he decides he no longer wants to trash himself. And I don't really understand what drove that because it feels like it was after he jumped out of the RV and Woody went after him, which I don't I just don't know how that changes Forky's perspective all that much. And for me, again, it's it's a really nitpicky complaint and a really small complaint in the grand scheme of things. because I still think this character is good and the narrative they're telling and the story they're telling with this character is original and new. And we haven't seen it in other in other Toy Story movies. And so it's really worthwhile. But if I had to point to a weaker point, it might be with this character. Yeah, I mean, they do set him up really well, I think, and then sort of put him on the sidelines maybe in the exactly. second act of the movie. So yeah. I agree with you there that maybe that's one very small area for improvement. Yeah, for sure. All right, any other characters? I, you know, I mentioned in passing Duck and Bunny, which is Key and Peele's characters in this movie, which I thought were hilarious. Uh, again, very minor characters, played for laughs, but done well. Any other characters, though, you'd like to add? I guess not. Uh, yeah, I mean, those are really the other major players. And uh, yeah, they're funny. They get some good laughs. I mean, they're just doing their... Their key and peel comedy shtick, but it works really well. Yeah, it does work really well. All right, Scott, taking off the gloves for the plot. Um, I mean, we, we can maybe talk about some of the lead up into the final act and the final scenes. But for me, I feel like we've, we've covered a lot of our bases talking about the characters because, of course, the, the characters and the narrative arcs of those characters are so critical to what the story is telling here. But full spoilers uh, are ahead. So for those of you who haven't seen it for uh, and are listening to the podcast, you know, just look at the time codes, flip forward. But now let's talk about that final act. Yeah, I mean, you know with a Toy Story movie at this point what you're going to get with the final act, right? That it's going to be something super emotional. And yeah, they absolutely deliver here with, um, you know, Woody ultimately making the decision to uh, stay with the quote-unquote lost toys instead of going back to Bonnie and his old friends, um, which, again, for all the reasons we've said, makes total sense because of the way that they set up everything and every character in this movie and, uh, you know, couldn't have been a more satisfying uh, way to to cap things off than this final scene uh, with him and Buzz. You know, he he it looks like he's going to go back to Bonnie, and uh, he's he's sort of caught in between the two groups there. And Buzz says to him, "You know, she'll be fine." Uh, and of course, you think that he's talking about Bo Peep, uh, but then he says Bonnie will. And it was just such a wonderful way to uh, catch you off guard for a second, and then you know make you realize, okay, this is what's going to happen. And yeah, the they're okay with this happening. This is what needs to happen. Uh, and like I said before, you know, it makes sense that it comes from uh, Buzz's mouth. Like, I, I'm not sure if if anyone else could have uh, told Woody that and and really cemented the decision in stone in the way that what Buzz says does. And then, you know, of course, the great moment as well of him passing the sheriff's badge on to Jesse. Um, again, feels natural based on what we see early in the movie where Bonnie has basically been doing that same thing when she's playing with the toys. Um, and, you know, a, a great sort of a changing of the guard moment there. And then the, the big group hug between all the toys. I mean, yeah, I, I won't lie. I was a mess during this scene, but so I was during Toy Story 3 too. So nothing new, really. I sat through all the credits uh, of this movie just so I could compose myself before I walked out. That feels right though, right? I mean, You talk about it looks like he's going to go back to Bonnie, and that's because that's Woody's default. In the other three movies, it would be unthinkable that he wouldn't, right? It's what his instinct is, but the culmination of that arc over the course of the movie from all the different angles, you know, him interacting with Forky, you know, where we get him at the beginning interacting with all the other toys and being kind of cast aside by Bonnie, seeing Bo Peep, you know, meeting Gabby Gabby even, right? Like, it's just 
it all comes together and the story ties together so beautifully. And yes, I, it absolutely, it made me cry as well. I don't know if I'd say I was a, a total mess, but I think I cried more in this one than I did in any of the other Toy Story movies. And that, that's a, I'm, and I cried in most of the other ones too. So there you go. Yeah, no, I, like I said, I did have to sit through the credits and when I got to the car, I was like, yeah, my eyes are still red. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a it's a beautiful ending, and so you know if we wind back to the beginning with the lead into the movie and ask the question, you know, was this a story worth telling? I think we're both giving it a pretty resounding like absolutely. I mean, you called yeah. it a necessary sequel in when you were opening your general impressions, and to say that it's a necessary sequel, honestly, it might be underselling it. Yeah, because and to, you know to add on to that, I think one interesting message that it really gets across is, you know, in these other Toy Story movies, what we've really seen is the traditional sort of nuclear family structure, right? With, with Andy's family, with Bonnie's family, even, um, it, it, you know, like I said, the traditional nuclear family that we're used to seeing, uh, in the American middle-class. But I think what this movie really, uh, drives home and, you know, hopefully drives home for kids everywhere is that, uh, you know, you don't have to have the traditional family structure, right? You don't have to, you know, in, in terms of this movie, right? It's not, you don't have to be loved by a kid, right? That's the, that's the, uh, tr- what you would consider the traditional family structure in these movies. You can find your family elsewhere, um, whether it's uh, with another kid um, or whether it's, you know, with uh, your friends, like what he does at the end. And, uh, you know, just because society might say you're a lost toy uh, doesn't mean that you actually are, doesn't mean that uh, you can't find people who love you and that, you know, that's the thing that really animates these toys all along. And so I think that that's a great message for them to drive home in this final entry. Yeah, I think the combination of of that message and also what they're saying about Sporky or sorry, geez, I've seen I've heard so many other people saying that. So it, it, it just <laughs> got me there again. Uh, what they're saying about what people are uh, and what they're trying to do with Forky as well. Right. Not only is, can you be loved outside of a nuclear family, but you don't have to be a normal toy to be loved either. And I think yeah. that when you combine all those messages together, it creates I mean, maybe it's it's recency bias. Granted, I did just see Toy Story three for the first time last week as well. But it does create, I think, uh uh, um, the most powerful story of the of the four movies. Yeah, I mean, it, it's going to resonate with so many people and already has. Yeah, and you talk about resonating. And one of the things that I meant to mention at the outset was that more so than any of the other movie, and maybe this is for obvious reasons, right? But like this just feels like the best standalone story. You don't have had to have seen any of the other Toy Story movies yeah. to get may, – maybe the emotional impact won't hit you quite as hard. But I think that this movie really, really stands alone in the franchise. And that's something that I think is just really awesome, too, when you get a, such a great sequel, but also can stand by itself. Yeah, I'd agree with that. All right, Scott. What was your favorite scene from Toy Story 4? I wonder if we'll say the same. Oh, man. You know, I of course, I love that last scene. That probably is uh, my favorite scene. But uh, to talk about, I guess, a uh, more humorous moment, I think maybe my hardest laugh was when Duke Kaboom makes his big jump into the target. Um, yes, that's and- so funny. Gets up in the air. There's that great shot of him, like in front of the moon, uh, posing, and he says, "Like this is for you, Rijan, or whatever his his former owner." Um, and then you know, face plants into the target, um, and it's just hilarious. I loved it. He overshot Scott. He did <laughs> a little bit outside, <laughs> just a bit outside. Uh, yeah, no, it, that's a hilarious scene, and it kind of. Again, talk about culminations. Like you get a bunch of the bits from Duke Kaboom through the first parts of the movie, and then it culminates. And oh, will he? Will he rise above his all the you know all of his flaws and make the jump perfectly? And 
No, he doesn't make the jump perfectly, but he does a good enough job to, yeah. to get us through it. <laughs> and of course, you know, to, to throw one more in there, having the two, two infinity and beyond there in there at the end, just, you know, wraps things up so perfectly. I mean, if you weren't wrecked before, Scott, I'm sure you yeah. were wrecked after that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, for me, the best scene, it, it is that last scene. It is the culminating scene where Woody has to make that choice. Uh, really, the string of scenes leading up to that, too. I mean, you have, we, we, we mentioned it already, but Gabby Gabby getting, you know, come, come, I guess, meeting the lost child as well and being and being her comfort as she's able uh, to, to find, you know, reunite with her parents there. I, it's a beautiful, that's a beautiful scene. And then the scene after it, you know, it's almost a shame that they're that they're right next to each other because then you almost forget about Gabby Gabby's moment because of how powerful that moment is with Woody yeah. and everyone else. And it, it just doesn't get better than that. And I think that's what we see across all the Toy Stories, right? It's not just about like they don't just have strong ending scenes, right? It's everything that builds up to them. You know, the Toy Story 3 is not just about the final scene where he gives the toy to Bonnie, but it's about, you know, the, the scene where they're about to go into the fire together, too. I mean, it's just Absolutely. as powerful. So. Yeah, when they lock hands, absolutely. Yeah, they they really know how to bring the movies home. All right, Scott, what what score are you going to give Toy Story 4? I'm torn because I had an idea when we went into um, this review of um, how I was going to score it, but I think I might have talked myself up a little bit. Me too. Um, And I think I'm going to go with a 9.6. Yeah, no, I was was hovering comfortably around a 9.0 starting out, and then Somehow, over the course of our conversation, I've talked myself up as well, uh, which probably means I need to go change it on my letterbox review too. But no, I, I'm going with uh, pretty much, I mean, almost the same score as you, 9.5. It's great. It is a great movie. All right. That should do it for our discussion of Toy Story 4. It was a good one. And we kept it relatively short compared to some of our other discussions, maybe just because we had no contradictory opinions to, to hash yeah. out. <laughs> Let's take a short break. And then we'll be back with the latest news. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, it was a busy week in news, so we have a lot of ground to cover. So let's jump right in. I think probably the biggest piece of news relevant for our podcast this week is that we found out that from, you know, per Kevin Feige, even while he's at a Spider-Man Far From Home press junket, that Avengers Endgame is going to be getting a slight box office tweak with seven new minutes of footage, including, I think, uh, maybe a deleted scene or two, a new post credit scene, and a new Stan Lee tribute coming out. Starting, and, and that film is going to be released starting this coming weekend, again, the weekend before 4th of July. It's awesome that they have this additional stuff to throw in, of course, but Scott, I think it's safe to say that this is entirely focused on what is to them a $38 million question of whether or not they will be able to pass Avatar at the global box office. Scott, do you think this sort of re-release, also with the kind of impending Spider-Man Far From Home release the 4th of July week, will this do it? Will this get Avengers Endgame over Avatar? You know, I personally think it will, um, just because this has uh, gotten so much press. And, you know, obviously the movie made a lot the first time around. So, I, you you know... you'd only need a very small fraction of the people who went to see it two or three times in the theater in the first run to come back for this, uh, you know, additional footage. I think the debate that we've seen on the internet is what do we think about sort of the ethics of this decision? And, um, you know, I think for me, it just depends on the footage, right? If it just feels like useless filler, throwaway stuff that we don't really need, um, 
then yeah, I I would be heavily critical of this decision to, uh, you know, put this movie back in theaters or I mean, add the new footage in just so they could try to get to that mark because ultimately it's a pretty petty goal. Like, yeah, of course it'd be cool to have the number one, but like they're both Disney properties, right? Avatar and this. So, I mean, it's Disney competing against themselves, which is kind of dumb. Um, And so, so, I mean, I think that's my whole take on that, but you know, if the footage is good and you know, I, depending on what my schedule is like, I may go check it out. Uh, It'll just depend on whether I have some free time or not, but um, yeah, very, very busy man, Scott. You know, we all know that you're, you know, going around your, all your different business meetings on the weekends. You don't have time to see these movies. Uh, well, I have other movies to see as was my point, but, uh, okay, yes. fine. Roast me, but, um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Go off. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, mean, I personally do think it will get there just because, like I said, you only have to ver- have a pretty small fraction of the people that came before to come see it again. And it was such a good movie, right. That I think people don't mind, um, sitting through uh, the movie again, even, even if it is three hours long. I mean, you know, even in the past few weekends, you know, when I've had a free evening or something, I've thought, you know, I could go see Endgame again. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I haven't, but, you know, the fact that I was even thinking about it speaks to how good the movie is. And so I think people will be willing to go sit through it, even if it is just another seven minutes. You know, I think that's right, too. And, and I think that there was always going to be a little bit of a bump coming into Spider-Man Far From Home. Mm-hmm. And I think that there was anyone who was a little bit on the fence about whether or not, you know, maybe should I go receive this? Should I not? Or maybe who have seen it twice and, you know, want maybe want that refresher. And they are big, you know, big Marvel, big MCU fan going in. And I think that this extra footage would put it over. There's been a lot of talk about maybe this deleted scene is a scene that was talked about on a couple junkets, I think, by the Russo brothers about how they pulled the scene. And it's of uh, Robert Downey Jr., Tony Stark, talking with a more grown-up version of his daughter after he snaps his fingers, similar to how Thanos is talking to a child Gamora uh, in the... It's the Soul Stone realm, right? So yeah. there's this deleted scene that apparently is out there where you have Tony talking to... Uh, a kind of... It, it, it was confusing the fans, apparently, in test screenings because there wasn't necessarily the association immediately that it was his daughter because it's not the you know the young version that we see throughout the rest of the film. But I think that if that's one of the scenes that's in it, I think it would be awesome extra footage, right? Because it's something that the that makes sense in terms of the parallelism with Infinity War. It makes sense in terms of getting that conversation between Tony and his daughter. And that could be, you know, really powerful stuff. And at least our impression is the only reason that it was, it was removed is because it was confusing audiences, right? But now that they've had the time to explain the scene and talked about it on these different press tours, you know, I think maybe some, at least some members of the audience, probably the members who would be willing to go see it a second, you know, a second, third, fourth, fifth time, right? <laughs> you know, before Far From Home comes out, probably that scene would probably really resonate with them. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, th- I think that's true. You know, f- for, for those type of people, I feel like anything, pretty much anything is going to resonate with them. But yeah, I mean, when you explain it like that, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And then it would be I'm interested because I think that I probably will check this out as much as I'm kind of rolling my eyes at myself that I'll go see this movie for a fifth time in theaters. I'm like, gosh, I could have seen so many other movies, right? Well, like Um, I said, it helps because it is such a good movie. Oh, yeah, for sure. You don't feel bad about supporting it. Rest assured, if it wasn't a good movie, I wouldn't have seen it four times already. I mean, even Uh, even if it was just like above average, like, you know, if it was on infinity wars level i don't know that i would i mean I, I liked infinity war a lot but i don't even know that i would go see it again but it's it was next level good yeah and especially now since it's been a minute since i've you know the last time i watched it 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that was over a month ago now, right? I, I saw it three times in the opening weekend, which is, I mean, looking back on that life decision, I'm not going to say it was a bad one, but it was a lot. And I and I really enjoyed it, especially my second viewing was probably the best viewing that I had. But then, you know, fourth viewing, I think a couple weeks after that. And now it's been over a month. So I think that seeing it again, even though I probably wouldn't have without this extra footage, but seeing it again before Far From Home comes out, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And I'll, and I'll probably do it. Yeah, I'm thinking I probably will too, but I don't know. Well, in other uh, sort of announcements, uh, I'll say the kind of the next few announcements are going to be all very uh, movie announcement related. And I think starting with the one that was most directly relevant to what we were talking about on the podcast today, and that's a Pixar announcement. They've announced their second 2020 movie. It's titled Soul. It's set for a summer release following, of course, their spring release, which will be Onward. And this is going to be directed by Pixar COO and the director of Monsters, Inc. Up and Inside Out, Pete Doctor. Scott, I don't know if we don't really know very much about this one. We know even less about this than we do about Onward. But you know, after seeing Toy Story 4, Scott, does this get you excited that you're getting some new original IP? I mean, yes, Onward is an original IP too, but this one seems maybe a little bit more up my alley. And when I see Pete Doctors directing Inside Out, one of my favorite Pixar movies, Up, a fantastic Pixar movie, not as big a fan of Monster Inc., but I'm pretty excited about this one. Yeah, I mean, that Onward teaser trailer didn't really grab me. So it's nice to know that um, there'll be another option for me there if, if Onward isn't something that resonates with me. And I mean, yeah, like Pete Doctor, obviously those are those are three classics that you've mentioned right there. I've I you know I actually haven't seen Inside Out, but I know how well loved it is, and I love Up. And personally, I do love Monsters Inc. Uh, it is one of my favorite Pixar movies. Um, so yeah, I mean this, it, like I said, it it it's nice to have your backup option there, right? Because um, this is the first time that Pixar has put out two movies. So yeah, not the first time that they'll be doing um, two releases in one year. Since since being acquired by Disney, I think they've ramped up their production to essentially three movies every two years. Because back in 2017, they did release Coco and Cars 3. Yeah. Cars 3, probably the one of the most forgettable Pixar movies. I'm personally, maybe a little biased there. I'm not a huge uh, Cars franchise fan personally. Uh, but yeah, no, they, they, they've ramped up their production schedule. And I think I'm still kind of in a wait and see approach about Onward, but we don't know very much about Salt, but I'm already excited about it. Maybe that's because of the, the proximity of the announcement to Toy Story 4, but even the description of it seems much more up my alley, much more the flavor of something like Inside Out than something like Onward. So I'm, I'm definitely excited for it and looking forward to next year. Yeah. Awesome. All right. And other movie announcements. Suzanne Collins this week announced that she's writing a prequel to The Hunger Games set 64 years before the original. And, you know, Lionsgate, of course, the producers of the, uh, you know, I was about to say original three, but original four Hunger Games movies is already working on a film adaptation, uh, working closely with Suzanne Collins there to nail the story down. Because I think they're trying to get a uh, pretty quick release after uh, of the film after we get uh, after we get that prequel uh, book release to Scott. Is this something that you're excited about? I know that we were texting back and forth. You mentioned you hadn't seen that final um, Mockingjay Part 2 movie in the Hunger Games franchise. Personally, I thought that was better than Part 1, um, but probably none of them surpassed the original Hunger Games movie for me. Is this something you're excited about? Do we need this? Is it worth Lionsgate spending a crap ton of money on it when we've seen a lot of these sort of franchise uh, additions in the past couple of weeks just totally flop at the box office. You know, I, I'm going to say, yes, I, I do think that um, this is a good addition to the hunger games uh, franchise because there is so much we don't know, right. About the events leading up to, you know, what, what established the hunger games as a thing, right. Because when the first book um, and movie kick off, you know, the, 
the Hunger Games have been around for a long time. And so there's a lot of history that's left unexplored there. And I think there could be a really interesting story behind, you know, what led, uh, you know, Pan Am to make this decision that, uh, you know, this Hunger Games was going to be uh, an annual part of their society. And, you know, I do like the first two mo- two movies a lot. Um, I think that the Hunger Games and Catching Fire are both really good movies. Uh, Mockingjay Part 1 did not throw me in. That's probably why I haven't seen the second one. But I have read all the books as well. And I definitely, uh, I'm definitely intrigued by this. Um, I like that they're making it a prequel because I think, like I said, for the reasons I said, I think that's the right decision to go. Um, and so, yeah, I- I'm on board uh, hopefully it won't fizzle out, but you know, we've seen like, even with dark Phoenix, we liked it a lot more than most people. That's true. I mean, I think that's a very fair point, but ultimately Lionsgate, uh, I know I'm going to roll us out our podcast on the bus here, but doesn't really care what we think of the movie. They just want to make money off of it. But I, I think you're right. Yeah. I think this is probably in safer territory than something like a men in black or something like an X-Men franchise based around. I mean, each one is unique, right? Each one's its own case study, but I do think there's probably a lot more going on for the Hunger Games there. But I mean, we'll just have to wait and see and find out as for what this book and what this movie is going to cover. I think I saw someone was doing the math on the timeline of of things. And this isn't going to be set before the Hunger Games actually started. It will be sort of already after it's happened, but we're not, of course that's not any detail of what's actually going to happen. But my first thought was exactly what you're talking about. Is this going to be, you know, a movie about the initiation of the Hunger Games about maybe the first Hunger Games, but people who are a little bit more savvy as to the Hunger Games lore than I am, I think are shooting that down. So it's really interesting to see what story is going to be told here. Hmm. Uh, maybe there'll be, I, again, I'm not sure the timeline, so I'm just firing from the hip totally here. My fear is that this might be some story kind of a retelling of some sort of revolt that happened 64 years before this, you know, the the current or the original franchise or the original stories kind of took place and that it might be just a rehashing of the same story in a different time. That's my cynical view. But my optimistic view is that it's going to be exploring different you know maybe some slightly different themes in a similar context in a similar world in a similar setting and maybe maybe something interesting will be created out of it yeah that's interesting i I didn't realize that that wasn't the direction that they're going with it but uh you know we'll see i'm still intrigued yeah no i'm I'm still intrigued i mean we don't know anything right now and and, you know maybe when we know more and we learn more we'll be uh we'll be able to come more firmly down on one side of the fence with the other yeah it's got another movie announcement here, Halloween from last year, a movie we reviewed on the podcast. Go check it out. Uh, there's already been a sequel confirmed uh, with David Gordon Green returning. I mean, I think the sequel was more or less confirmed last year when the movie was successful, but the big question marks were around David Gordon Green. Would he be returning to direct the sequel? That is going to be the case. Will Jamie Lee Curtis return? Also, yes. Judy Greer, Andy Matichak also returning. So we're going to get the whole main cast back. Scott, is this a good thing? Are you excited about this sequel? Well, I mean, yeah, uh, you know, these horror sequels sometimes wear out their welcome really quickly. And, you know, I'm not sure where they go with it here based on how the first movie ended. But I did really like the first movie a lot. Um, I think you enjoyed it as well, if I remember. Um, So I I think that with all the same people involved, um, you know, they at least have the right recipe for success if you're going to go with the sequel. So, yeah, I'm down for one sequel depending on you know where it goes maybe not down for multiple sequels but we'll see yeah i'm 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 hesitant that this movie will be will live up to this first one because again like you said the end of the first movie it it you know it felt like a fitting end to that but of course with all horror franchises if it's successful in the first time why not why not give it a second try to and make some more money so that's that's what they're going to do here and you know what 
that's okay. And if they make a good movie out of it, that's okay too. Like, awesome. Yeah, slasher franchises in particular was all I was going to say are, are known for uh, being quite prolific with their sequels. Uh, we're going to move away from movie announcements now to some casting news. And I think probably the biggest casting news coming out of last week was Michael Fassbender is set to star in a Lionsgate spy thriller called Malco based on Gerard de Villiers' best-selling SAS book series and uh, adapted by the writer for American Hustle, Scott. This was some really cool announcements. Uh, Michael Fassbender, someone we're a fan of, you know, he's had some hits and some misses with uh, movies and franchises that he's been a part of. I mean, you have something of the flavor of the X-Men franchise, which I think was largely a success for him. But then you also have movies like, you know, The Snowman, which were total flops. So, yeah, I know, exactly. But then he's also been a part of Assassin's Creed, and he's also a part of the Alien franchise. So he's a man who really has gotten around a lot. Scott, Do you uh, are you expecting this movie to be a hit or a miss? I, you know, I really, without knowing more, I don't know that I can say at this point um, because I'm not familiar with the series or anything that it's based off of. But, you know, they're off to a good start with getting... Uh, Michael Fassbender involved. Personally, I'm not the hugest American Hustle fan. So the fact that, um, you know, they got the writer from that movie is just kind of a wash for me in terms of how I feel about it. But yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a great actor. He was the best thing, arguably, about all those X-Men, X-Men movies. And, uh, you know, I love a good spy movie, so I'm down. Yeah, it, feel, it feels like a very much uh, a t- trying to be a competitor with something like a 007 franchise movie, right? You know, you look at your, you know, European spy thriller, uh, having someone like a Michael Fassbender uh, in the in the lead role definitely is of the physique and of the type. And and when it's a spy movie, I'm sure this will be a summer blockbuster when it does come out, whether it's next year or the year after, probably the year after, I'd imagine, just based off the timing of the announcement. Uh, no, I'm excited about it. And for me, it's not a question of whether Michael Fassbender is going to be good in the role, right? It's a question of, whether the things around him come together and make it a good movie. And so I just am going to hope that it comes together and makes a good movie. Uh, Yeah, I'm with you. All right. All right. Another casting news, Scott, one that maybe didn't make a bunch of waves when it was announced, but for us, I think is a big deal because Brian Tyree Henry is one of our favorite actors right now. And that's that Brian Tyree Henry will be joining Emily Blunt in the cast of a quiet place too. Yeah, of course I'm excited about this, you know, with, with the caveat that, I just saw Child's Play, uh, and I'm, I'll talk about it in our review roundup, but they did not use Brian Tyree Henry enough, unfortunately. Um, so I hope that this horror franchise does not make the same mistake of uh, putting him in the movie and then not effectively using him uh, enough. But, you know, obviously this is exciting. We know that the original cast is going to be coming back, with the exception of John Krasinski, of course. Um, so it'll be interesting to see maybe if he steps into that John Krasinski sort of role here, um, that, that could be interesting, you know, regardless, this is going to be a big movie to watch for next year. Yeah. I'm still skeptical about this sequel. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see how this character and how Brian T Tyree Henry fits into the movie. I personally hope that he doesn't just kind of become John Krasinski's character. I really hope they explore new themes and, and dive deeper on some new topics, uh, that, I thought maybe the first movie didn't handle as well, right? Or that was too on the nose. Uh, there are just little moments in A Quiet Place that I just thought were done not as well as I would have hoped. And so for that reason, I hope that they, you know, maybe try to explore some new things and use Brian Tyree Henry in a way that is a little bit more original than just try to slot him in as John Krasinski stand in for the movie. But we'll see. Again, I haven't seen, I haven't seen Child's Play. I'm probably not going to see it. So I'm not going to have that, uh, mark against me but i'm still excited about right now anything that brian tyree henry is a part of 
And we'll see him in Joker later this year as well. Yeah, absolutely. And Zazzy Beats. All right, Scott, moving on to some movie rights acquisitions news. Netflix was making some moves this week as they acquired uh, the distribution of several movies. First, uh, a movie starring Viola Davis and Chadwick Bosman, uh, which is a play adaptation, reminded me a lot of Fences. I'm not going to lie with Viola Davis in there. But that is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Uh, their other movie that they acquired this week was an Andrew Garfield-led musical with Lin-Manuel Miranda as the director, and that's called Tick, Tick, Boom, Scott. Which one of these you gets you most excited uh, and do you think that both of these are good acquisitions for Netflix? Yeah, both of them get me excited. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Viola Davis, one of those actresses that I'll pretty much watch in anything. Uh, I, I am familiar with this play, not like with many of the details of it, but I know it was very successful on Broadway. Um, so I think it could make a good small scale sort of uh, movie for Netflix to pick up. And then, yeah, I, I'm really curious about this musical, um, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda getting into film for the first time in terms of getting behind the camera. Uh, and then Andrew Garfield, you know, obviously coming off of Under the Silver Lake. I'm very interested to see what his next project uh, is going to be. Um, and so, yeah, this is, you know, kind of on the opposite end. I, I don't know scale wise if this is going to be something that is best suited for Netflix or if, you know, this is going to be something more suited for a big screen. Uh, but I'm intrigued nonetheless. Yeah, I think it's going to be, it could be one of those projects with Netflix, particularly this Tick, Tick, Boom one. I think it's going to be one of those projects where you really hope you can find it in a theater to go see it, right? Maybe it'll get a wide enough indie release to yeah. to find its way to theaters. You know, I, you were seeing that with, you know, when they have directors like Alfonso Cuaron, you'll see it later this year, I'm sure, when Scorsese's Irishman come, comes out. It's a question of, will Lin-Manuel Miranda push that direction? Right. I think this is something that would probably be best enjoyed, as I think most movies are probably best enjoyed on the big screen. And so I I will hope to see it there because I don't necessarily think of musicals as Netflix's wheelhouse in terms of Mm -hmm. what people go to Netflix for for content. That doesn't mean that it won't work. Right. People who are Netflix subscribers may see a kind of a a high profile musical for the first time on Netflix original content and be like, oh, well, awesome. Let's go watch this. It could be, you know, immensely popular. Right. But I do kind of hope that I'll get to snack or see this in, in theaters. Yeah, I agree. I'm with you there. Yeah. All right. Other acquisition news. Paramount has acquired the rights to Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a murder mystery crime thriller directed by, oh, we just mentioned his name, Martin Scorsese. And if you had to guess one actor who Martin Scorsese would be working with, it would probably be this one. And that's Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, you said a lot of buzzwords there, um, whether it's murder, mystery, thriller, Scorsese, DiCaprio, yeah. uh, all very good ingredients um, for something that I'm sure both of us are going to be, uh, you know, very excited whenever we see it. Yeah, I have absolutely no more details on this movie. I have no idea when it's going to be coming out. It sounded like it was fairly fleshed out. I don't know. I don't need any more details, honestly, at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, you know, it's I'm actually in. coming out next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a direct competition for Far From Home. Uh, no, uh, Paramount needs a win or two because they're going to have a couple duds coming out later this year with Sonic. Well, I guess not later this year now, but Sonic, et, et cetera. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to bring that up on the podcast. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I think just. Uh, oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, two last little fun bits of news uh, to wrap our news section up with today. First being that Joker has been confirmed as an R rating. When I saw this movie announcement, my first thought was, was this really was this a movie really not going to be rated R? Yeah. Boy, was there was there a thought process that it wasn't going to be? So I felt reassured to see that it definitely was going to be rated R. Uh, so Scott, I, I assume you feel the same way. Yeah, I just I, I was just trying to imagine a world in which the you know the movie that we 
uh, Noah from the trailers is somehow rated PG-13. And I'm glad we don't have to, you know, live in that world because uh, this movie is going to be very dark, uh, probably very violent. And I think it's, uh, it's going to mature themes will be explored. I would imagine. Yes. Uh, So it's good to see that they're not shying away from the R rating just because it's a comic book movie, because, you know, Deadpool and Logan show that you can uh, succeed with R rating. Okay. Yeah. Last bit of news here. Uh, I know I mentioned fun. I was mainly thinking of this one when I said it, and that is because the Razzie Awards are going to be coming to broadcast television this year. Scott, you were really hyped when I told you this. <laughs> well, so with the caveat that I hope that the, this is approached with the uh, ide- idea that um, we're going to celebrate bad movies, because I think to some extent we should. Um I think that making fun of these movies is only going to go uh, so far. And a lot of times, you know, these movies involve uh, people who uh, may have worked really hard and, you know, uh, will go on to do bigger and better things. And so probably don't deserve your ridicule. But I think if this is, you know, framed, I, I said to you that I think this this should be hosted by uh, the hosts of How Did This Get Made? I think if it's, if it's framed like an episode of that podcast uh, where, yes, they – they make fun of the movies, but they're having fun and, and celebrating their badness um, while doing it. I think that's really the the atmosphere to to try to cultivate with this. And, and you know, hopefully some of the actors and uh, people involved with the films will join in with the fun as well. But, yeah, I'll definitely be watching this. Yeah, I, I fear that that is not the direction that they will go. And so I think that I will I will try to refer to to as many people as possible for you to be a, a maybe a production consultant on this, because I can't imagine that's the direction that they go with this broadcast, which is well, my biggest fear. And I mean, you know, they've done the Razzies before. They've I mean, they've been doing the ceremony for years. So yep. it will be interesting to see if they change it up at all for TV or if they just kind of, you know, keep things as they have been. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. And you also mentioned people who have gone to do bigger and better things. Sometimes, even in the same year, I believe Sandra Bullock won a Razzie and an Oscar in the same year. So, Well, yeah, I, I will say that I don't think that the movie she won the Oscar for was uh, particularly above Razzie level. But um, I think a more recent example would be like Olivia Cook last year, who was in Ready Player One, which was trash, and but was also in Thoroughbreds, which is one of the best movies of the year. So. There you go. And I think neither made it to the recognition level of the Razzies or the Oscars. Yeah, I think that's true. All right, Scott, I think that should just about do it for episode 48 of Some Like It, Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Cleveland Indians have won eight of 10. I'm back on the hype train. Uh, They're they're coming for the twins. They're still eight games back, but uh, slowly but surely they're getting there. Woo woo. Hype train. Yeah, no, good stuff. I mean, I don't really follow baseball as closely as you do, but I did check the standings, and the Braves are crushing it this year. Yeah, so. they, uh, they've they won like seven of their last eight or something. Yeah, they, they can definitely hit the ball. But all I'll say is Bobby Bradley, remember the name for the Indians, and shout out to uh, Grant Williams, Admiral Schofield, Jordan Bone, getting drafted in the NBA draft. First time three NBA uh, Tennessee players have been drafted since like the 80s. Well, there you go. And one of them coming up and uh, going to be living near me next year. That's right. Go Grant. Yeah, there you go. Uh, can't wait to see you in a Celtics jersey, even if uh, Grant Williams you will. Name doesn't. You definitely will. To me yet. <laughs> there you go. You can wear it to trivia or something when we're all back in tennis in Tennessee <laughs> together. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Scott. Where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Scarvy Dent. 
All right. And I can be found at, at shelton2013, where you can also find our podcast on Twitter at, at MediaPlugPods. And we'd love it if you followed us and then checked out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash MediaPlugPods. There are a bunch of different reward tiers over there, depending on how much you're willing to pledge to the podcast. And we'd appreciate it so much, even if you only contributed at the $1 level. So again, check it out over there at www.patreon.com slash MediaPlugPods. All right. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and on Podbean, where we'd also appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, as well as subscribed and shared so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. All right, Scott, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. Next week, we'll be back with the second musically inclined drama of the spring slash summer. This time, not a biopic, though, with the Beatles-influenced film Yesterday. For now, however, that'll be all from us. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening.